coming to you from the Philadelphia area. This is the Westchester Church Podcast. Check us out at westchestercfc.com. Westchestercfc.com. All right, well, the very first words of divine utterance revealed to us in our Bibles, the very first description of the creation of the world that's given to us, is this universe of a vast, infinite darkness. And yet, even though there was nothing but God and the dark, God illuminates all of that darkness in Genesis chapter 1. We see this same God who spoke the universe into existence speaks a sun into existence. And the day is created and it separates it from the night. And then God speaks a moon into existence and it shines and it burns throughout the dark night. And then I guess just for a measure of fun, God fills just about all the rest of that space with a whole bunch of stars. And suddenly there were lights that were shining in the midst of the darkness. The Israelites, ever oppressed by the burden of 400 years of slavery, are crying out to God under the cruelties of Pharaoh. And not very long later, we see the plagues befall Egypt, where, where all of a sudden water is, is turning into blood, and there's frogs, and there's gnats, and there's flies. The livestock dies, and then we have the boils, and the hail, and the locusts wreaking their havoc. Well, we come to the ninth of those plagues, to the penultimate plague that is fallen upon Egypt, which is the plague of the dark. God describes it as a darkness that is so dark that it was a darkness that could be felt. Where for three ghastly days and three ghastly nights, they couldn't even see each other. They couldn't even leave their, their homes because it was as if they were blind. For these three days and nights, the Egyptians found themselves living in a vast, infinite darkness. And yet for the people of God, though, there was a divine light that was shining in the midst of their darkness. And then after the death of the firstborn, Pharaoh finally says enough is enough and he lets them out of Egypt. And the Israelites now are venturing out of Egypt toward the wilderness by the way of the Red Sea. And yet the sun now is going down on that very first day of their liberation. And, and now all of a sudden the Israelites find themselves in the middle of nowhere in this vast, infinite darkness. And yet, nevertheless, God is going before the Israelites in a pillar of fire by night. God gives them light. God is their light. And God guides them through their night. Well, anybody with New Testament ears and New Testament spirits and New Testament hearts knows what all of this is pointing to, don't you? And that's because it's pointing all the way to Jesus Christ. John chapter 8, verse 12. Jesus is speaking to a group of Pharisees, as he oftentimes does in the Gospels. 
And it says in John chapter 8 and verse 12 that Jesus spoke to them and, and he was saying that, that I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but he will have the light of life. Jesus is saying to this group of sanctimonious religious gatekeepers that in this sanctimonious world of yours of vast, infinite religious darkness, there is a darkness that can be felt. And yet there is also a light that is shining in the midst of all of your darkness. And you're looking at that light right now. And that's because that light is me. It's the Greek word phos, meaning radiance. It means illumination. But, but what I especially love about this word phos is a fire that is burning in a dark night. And you see, this is who Jesus is. That's his identity. You want to know who Jesus is? Jesus says that, that I don't merely possess some form of light, but I'm here to tell you that I am the light. You can just call me light because that is who I am. That is what I am. That is why I'm here to be light. And yet even earlier than John chapter 8, though, we come to Matthew chapter 5. We come to my favorite section of Scripture, and that is the Sermon on the Mount. Every time that I read Matthew 5, 6, and 7, I just feel so much happiness in my heart. Because what Jesus is proclaiming to us and what he's announcing to the world is that there is something so much better than, than the status quo of everything that you've ever known. This is how to be Jesus in this world. And so after he has explained to the world that, that I am the light of the world in John chapter 8, in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 14, Jesus says something, seven words to us that, that every time that we hear them, it, it, just, it just blows our mind. Where Jesus says, you, yes you, you are the light of the world. On the Sermon on the Plain, Jesus is saying, that not only am I the light of the world, but you are the light of the world too. You are sacred luminosity. You are a fire burning in a darkened night. And I imagine that there are a lot of us upon hearing this as a pronouncement made upon us for the very first time, where, where our response may have been something along the lines of, Jesus, are you sure that you're talking about the right guy here? I mean, I'm just the guy who works at Lowe's. I'm a receptionist at a dentist office. I'm making $8.50 working at ShopRite. I'm the guy who asks people, would you like that in paper or in plastic? What do you... I mean, what do you mean that I am the light of the world? Yes, you are the radiance of God's glory, Jesus. You are the light of the world. And I have never once looked at my own reflection in the mirror and said, that is the radiance of God's glory. Quite the opposite, Jesus. 
I've never said that I am the light of the world because that, that would be sacrilege. And yet what Jesus is saying to us is, oh, yes, you are the radiance of God's glory. And not only is that true, but, but this is what your identity is. This is who you are. This is why you are walking this earth to be a shining light in a darkened world. Well, let me explain what this really does not mean for us. This, this does not at all mean that, that we have become the light of the world because of our own personal religious morality. I mean, that is precisely what Jesus is addressing and, and what he came to rescue us from. And yet it's as the Apostle Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 1, where he says that, that you and I as the followers, as the people, as the sons and daughters of Jesus Christ, that we have been granted those precious promises of God. That through those precious promises of God, that we may become the partakers of Jesus' divine nature. See, I think another way of saying that is that we can only shine as the light of the world if Jesus, the light of the world, is shining in us. And yet, what every generation of the Christian community has ever found themselves against and, and at war against is that as human beings, we are way too good at concealing light sometimes, aren't we? Now, it's something that I don't think that we would ever say it out loud necessarily. But sometimes there is this unspoken attitude and desire within us that, that I, I really like this light of Jesus. And yet, I don't want to get too much of that light in here. And so, so what do we do when we live this way we blend in with everybody else in the vast, infinite dark. Jesus goes on and explains in the latter part of verse 14 that, that a city set upon a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but instead they have it on the stand that it reflects light to everybody who is in the whole entire house. No, Jesus is not saying this to anybody who, who smugly anoints they themselves as being religious gatekeepers in this world. Jesus is not saying this to a bunch of people who are only hanging around Jesus, waiting around until they die so that he can get them into heaven someday. Jesus isn't addressing them. And yet the context of what Jesus means and, and, and who his audience is as he says, you are the light of the world, is anyone and everyone who hears these sacred words of his and who lives to do them and who exists to become those words. And so what we see this morning is that shining is the intentional desire to bring Jesus with us and to showcase him and to show Jesus off inside every single room that we are going to step inside. Jesus calls us a city that is on a hill, and, and that, of course, is in reference to his, his community at large, as you and I understand it, as, as his church. 
You see, we are, are individual lights, but we're also communal lights together. And Jerusalem is a city that just so happens to be situated upon a hill. And to this day, as you come into the city of Jerusalem late at night, there is no mistake whatsoever, this is Jerusalem. This is the city of the great king, because after all, you can see it miles away. It is just bathed, and it is awash in bright, shining lights. And I believe the way that this church multiplies, and the way that Jesus envisions it to multiply, is when Matthew chapter 5, Matthew chapter 6, and Matthew chapter 7 are the only constitution that we are living for and that we are dying for. Because when we are a people of the Sermon on the Mount, this world looks at us and says, that is a follower of Jesus Christ right there. I mean, they respond to all kinds of mistreatments with gentleness and with mercy. They pray even for their worst enemy, and they do good to them. They have this unquenchable hunger and thirst to find what the deepest wounds of their society are. And then, I mean, they hunger and thirst as they pursue justice in those ways. And they don't stop until they have that justice. I mean, they step back as they see other people, and, and it's so creative. They, they um, imagine, what if that were me? And then they respond to that person's needs by just imagining how this is how I would want to be treated. Well, where Christians have gone wrong for over a thousand years is when we we grow convinced that, well, we need Jesus plus something else. And so now the attitude becomes, well, well, being the light of Jesus in this world is nice. But what we really want more is power and control. Or a little bit of Jesus is okay, but, but we need to get a lot of the political persuasions of our empire to go along with Jesus. And for many people, the Christian life has, has gone from Christian light shining in a dark world to we need to sit around and we need to be the enforcers of people who aren't Christians. We need to come up with all of the rules for the non-Christian world that they need to follow and get in line with. Because after all, all of this needs to be a theocracy of righteousness. And so we need to take a bunch of Bible verses and we need to spiritually shiv people into subjection. And yet that never, ever, ever, ever works, does it? Or even worse, people have this need to politicize Jesus and try to make him fit all of these agendas of the earth. And then church people wonder, where are all of the young people in our churches? Why isn't our church multiplying and, and spreading like, like a wildfire like it used to? Amen. A lot of people say, well, it's because we have a lousy preacher. He hasn't converted the whole entire city just yet. And sometimes maybe it is a lousy preacher. That happens often. 
And yet I think more so what it is is that people in the non-Christian world are being handed this, this angry, hateful, toxic masculinity, white supremacist Jesus. Jesus never said, be that in the world. I mean, the world has enough of the darkness to begin with. It doesn't need even more darkness. And you see, when this happens, there is a broken, despairing, ravaged world that is living in a vast, infinite darkness. And there are lights that are out there, but the lights of the world aren't shining in the midst of that darkness anymore. They're somewhere way over here underneath a table, all distracted about this or about that. And they're being extinguished and, and snuffed out by, by all of this darkness that we sometimes entertain and that we harbor deep within us. Well, in verse 13 of our text, before Jesus ever pronounces us as the light of the world, Jesus gives us yet another glimpse into what our new identities are as his followers. Where Jesus says first that you are, this is who you are, this is your identity. This is why you are walking this earth, to be the salt of the earth. Jesus says you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything, Jesus says, except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by, by other people. Well, in the ancient world, salt was what had preserved food. It's what gave food its flavor. You would consume something and it would make it so much better and nicer. And yet, as Jesus reveals to us, it is possible, it is so easy for us to be the salt of the world that loses its saltiness. Jesus says that when this happens, when this is what we become, we are no longer good at anything other than being thrown out and discarded. You see, when we are no longer influencing the world with the flavors of the real Jesus Christ and with the Sermon on the Mount, the world just pretty much ignores us. And by the way, what Jesus is really driving at here is, by the way, they should ignore us if that is what we are giving them. I am calling you to be salt and light in this world, not something else. And so when we draw near to God every morning, every afternoon, and every evening, and our prayer and our desire now is, Jesus, light of the world, shine in me wherever I go today. When you and I buy into Jesus plus nothing else, just Jesus, it makes believers out of the skeptics. Amen. In verse 16, Jesus says, and in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. I don't know about you, but that sounds exciting to me. That sounds like something that we could live for right there. And that's because there are a lot of Christian skeptics out there. There are many people who have been burned by the toxic religiosity of the scribes and the Pharisees. 
That's what the bad news is. And yet I am a proclaimer of the good news. And, and the good news is that the good news is greater than the bad news. And that good news is, is that when we find our identity in being the light of the world, that gives us something to live for. And I can't tell you how many times what has gone through my mind as I have attempted to live the Christian life in workplaces and wherever I, I've, I've gone as a Christian. How many times I've thought to myself, this is better than playing for the Philadelphia Eagles. This is better than playing for the Los Angeles Lakers. Are you telling me that when I walk out that door this morning, I'm going to have opportunities all day long to show people that there really is a Jesus of good news and that they could very well be encountering and experiencing the real Jesus of the Gospels for the very first time and through all of, of all people through me? You see, when we anticipate letting our light shine with every fiber of our being, yes, there will be a lot of people who will not be interested in that light. John, John chapter 3, it says that, that the light came to men, but men loved the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. And, and anybody who has an aversion to the darkness does not want to come into the light. That's true. And yet it's also true that there will be some who will see our good works, Jesus says, and as a result, consequently, they will glorify Jesus Christ with us. In other words, when we bring Matthew 5, 6, and 7, or, or when we live the real Jesus shining as lights in this world, we won't even have to invite them to come worship God with us. They will just start glorifying God right where they are. <laughs> And of course, Jesus goes on and he explains also that when you shine in this way, it's not in such a way that you say, everybody, look at me. I've got, got a, um, a selfie stick as I do my good works. Glorify me because of how righteous I am. No, that's not what that means at all. But rather what Jesus is inviting us to live, though, is that everywhere that we go, and everyone who we speak to, what we are proclaiming, especially what we are showing them and demonstrating to them in very few words, is that Jesus is the love of this world. Jesus says that they're going to glorify God. That word glorify means to honor somebody, but it also means to utterly astound somebody. Up to where you just leave them awestruck. And you see, this is what God wants. This is the life that Jesus is inviting us to embody. This is what it means to shine. And the theologian Stanley Hauerwas says it like this. He says that the church doesn't have a social strategy. The church is a social strategy. And that's just another way of saying that the church doesn't have a light. The church is the light. 
I heard about a sister congregation in Richland Hills in Texas. And they have such an established presence in the poor communities where they live that city officials actually approached them, came to their turf, and said, whatever you guys are doing over here in this church, it is working. And we, I mean, we just want your input about this program in our city and about that program that we are considering. I mean, when these non-Christians, largely non-Christians, saw this community of Christians shining in such a way, having compassion for all these people who they had never met before, these elected city officials came to them and basically said, show us how to be a better city. And these people glorified God as a result of that. And yet it's not just those, those huge megachurches, though, who's able to do this. I was standing in um, fellowship room not that long ago. I was with, with Lori and, and another woman who came to receive a lot of stuff that came from our congregation here. And she's walking through our building, and it's a small church building, and we, we are a very small congregation, and so it seemed like she, she had been expecting a very small and yet generous a donation. And yet she walks into that room, and there it's just full of donation after donation after donation after donation. And she was utterly awestruck and astounded at this small church's outpouring of lavish generosity to those who are poor. And as we were praying with her, her eyes were just welling up in tears because she was astounded and she was glorifying God because of the light that she saw in us. Well, soon we are going to be returning to our auditorium. And I can't wait to be with all of you again, because after all, we are a community. We, we are communal lights, aren't we? We are a city that is on a hill. And I'm also excited about, at the thought of returning to being out more and having more opportunities as we once did. But when we do, brothers and sisters, we are going to be surrounded by people who are living in a vast, infinite darkness and more than ever before. And so in the meantime, in the days ahead, what we really need to be conscious of more than ever before is, first of all, they are watching us. They're listening to everything that we are saying at work or, or wherever it is. They're reading what we post on social media. They know a little bit about Jesus. And yet when they see the real thing, though, they're going to fall in love with the gospel of Jesus. And you see, in order for this to happen, we have got to embrace our identity. We've got to believe who we are truly now in Jesus Christ. As odd as it sounds, as outlandish as the words sound coming out of our mouths, We've got to process every single day. No, no, no. This is what my identity is. Is that there is a light that is shining in this present darkness that can be felt. 
And that light is me. I am the light of the world because the light of the world shines in me. We are a city on a hill. We are the radiance of God's glory. You and I, brothers and sisters, are the light of the world. And our city has had more than enough of the sanctimonious pomposity of the scribes and the Pharisees. What they need, what they are hungering and thirsting for, whether they know it or not this morning, is a sacred luminosity of Christ in us.